good morning again. Um, according to Ben, my life is a joke. Um, but you will get filled up hopefully this morning because we're going to read from the Bible. Um, if I don't know you and you don't know me, that's probably okay because I'm typically upstairs with the youth group. My name's Phil. I get to serve as the youth pastor here. Um, and this morning, we're going to be in, in Matthew 8. Um, but before we get there, I, I have this question for you. Have you, in, you know, if you're in here, have you ever told someone, and typically we tell this to kids, right, uh, to do something, right? And, and, and when asked why, our response is, you guys are good. Most of I, I sense a lot of parents in this room. Yeah, yeah. And, and I found this meme that was like so accurate because so often it's like a kid asks you, why are we doing this? Or shucks, even an adult. And like sometimes as an adult, we like spit it back at another adult and it's awkward. And we're like, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. That's frustrating for me, even as an adult still. Like when someone says, well, it's because I said so. It's like, who gave you the authority? to say that and, and just let it be so, all right? I don't understand what's going on. You know, as a kid, I didn't actually ask why too much. Um, and dad, you're probably gonna listen to this later and I'm gonna get a call. Uh, I'm prepared for that. Um, but, but actually, I, with my parents specifically, I knew I'd be in trouble if I asked why too often. So I just kind of avoided it. But like with my, with my teachers, or I would even witness other kids asking their parents why. And, and I, they got this because I said so a lot. And I was just frustrated by it. I was like, surely there's a better reason. Like that's a cop out. And then about two years ago yesterday, um, I, I became uh, a dad. We were blessed with Liza, and, and it's almost as if, like, parents everywhere, like, invisibly just, like, crowns Becca and I with this, like, authority that you can now begin to say it. And I remember my first time saying it to my own kid. I'd said it to the youth kids many times, but my own kid, right? I said it to, to Liza, and it was just like, ha! You have to deal with it now, because I said so, and I'm your dad, and that's all you can do about it. And it was wonderful. <clears throat> I'm okay with the phrase. I got to tell you. Whenever a parent specifically uses that phrase with a kid, an element of faith is introduced to the child. And he or, he or she then has to choose whether or not they're going to follow the instructions of mom or dad. And mom and moms and dads, and even if you're a boss or whatever, we typically don't say this out of maliciousness. We typically say this out of the authority given us as an overseer over someone else with good intentions in mind. And faith is introduced to that child or person, and they have to decide, am I going to follow and submit that authority or not? Am I going to have faith in that authority or not? This morning, I want to look at an interaction between an individual and Jesus, where to my knowledge, this is the only interaction in the Bible where Jesus is, have, is recorded as marveling or being amazed at the faith of the individual in a positive way. Now, now he is amazed at the lack of faith earlier uh, in his hometown, but we're going to specifically look at, at the account from Matthew 8. If, if you have your Bibles, I need you to open those. We're going to take this verse by verse. And, you know, we, we might think, you know, well, maybe this is the faith of a rabbi. Surely this is like a Pharisee or something that, that, that might have been uncommon for a, for a Pharisee to have faith in Jesus. Maybe Jesus is amazed. Wow, finally someone. And no, it's not a rabbi. Maybe it's a disciple. You know, maybe it's, it's a disciple that, that finally gets a Peter, perhaps. He's, he's got a hot head and a loud mouth. I don't know. Maybe, no, it's not Peter. It's not a disciple. You know, of all people, though, who we're going to look at, is the faith of a Roman centurion, a non-Jew who typically wanted nothing to do with Christianity or Jesus or anything about that. 
as you're flipping to Matthew 8, I need to provide you with some background. Jesus has just finished preaching, arguably, pardon, his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And he's been preaching to droves. They're on a journey now. In the next nine stories, he's going to perform 10 different miracles. And so he starts this campaign. Uh, one of the first miracles he performs is he comes across a leper. Huge no-no, by the way. Jew or not, you don't interact with lepers. And Jesus crosses a cultural and a physical barrier, actually reaches out, touches him, heals the leper, continues on his way to Capernaum. And that's where we find ourselves in Matthew 8, verse 5. If you have a Bible, I need you to read it along with me. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Asking for help. Being a Roman centurion was no small task. This was a military officer that had been in the military for several years. He has been hardened by battle. He was advanced in strength, advanced in hand-to-hand combat and communication skills. He would have possessed many, many important connections, as well have been responsible for many soldiers underneath of him, hence the term centurion, you can, you can figure out how many roughly soldiers were underneath of him. Century. He would have needed to be able to carry out orders precisely, effectively, without hesitation. If we could put it in a phrase, this is a top dog in the area. This is no small man. And so what in the world is he doing coming before a poor Jewish teacher? Verse six, Lord, we'll come back to that. Lord, he said, My servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. He calls Jesus Lord, which may simply be referring to him as master or sir, or perhaps, just perhaps, he's implying a little bit more about the identity of Christ in that phrase. He's coming on behalf of his terribly sick and dying servant, which tells me that his his addressing Jesus as Lord is one of submission to authority. The man in charge, we read, has recognized Jesus as a superior. And that takes a lot of humility. But to add to his humility, we find out that a military servant is residing in the home of his battle-hardened master and that his master's heart is aching at the thought of his suffering. Though important to the centurion, make no mistake, servants are important to their masters in this time. Though important to the centurion, this is still just a lowly servant. Yet where do we find ourselves? With a battle-hardened military officer coming and going to great lengths on behalf of someone else who though important, this someone else is still half as important as him. I loved Kurt's point last week when he said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. And I gotta tell you, I see that in this centurion. Luke, actually, in the synoptic account in, in, in Luke, it actually, he, he gives us the additional details that the centurion actually sent the Jewish elders to Jesus on his behalf to plead with Jesus to come and honor his request and come. To understand, this is not, you know, I'm too good for you, Jesus. This is actually, we find out why. He didn't even feel worthy to come before Christ himself. He didn't even feel like he could. Didn't feel like he was worthy enough. Had the standing to. The elders are more than happy to bring this request before Jesus. We found out why from Luke. Turns out this Roman centurion loves Israel, actually. Even though he's their sworn enemy, he loves Israel. 
And he's done a bunch for Capernaum. He even built their synagogue, which by the way, a lot of sources say that in order to do that, he probably would have paid for that out of his own pocket. He's highly invested in Israel, highly invested in Capernaum. Again, Notice the humility aspect coming from the centurion. He's invested in them. He's heard about Jesus' healing in the process. And now he humbly comes with a request for healing. And I love Jesus' response. You see it in verse 7. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. Take a time out from the story. I love that phrase. Because in that phrase, there's a lot going on. Jesus, in that phrase, he has just healed the leper, an outcast, an untouchable, and in that phrase, he turns to the servant of a non-Jew, and he's declaring that he has come to seek and to save the lost, those who had no hope, those who were the outcasts and have nowhere else to turn. I see a grand part of who Jesus came to talk to and be about in that phrase, I will go and heal him. There's almost an urgency there, a readiness, yes, let's go. It tells me a lot about who Jesus cares about. And I need you to know in here, if you are finding yourself in that outcast category, that I don't belong with Jesus category, can I tell you that Jesus is here for you? I need you to hear that. We continue in the story. When the centurion hears that Jesus is on his way, I would expect him, and this is just an expectation on my part, but I would expect him to be overjoyed, elated, and welcome Jesus readily to come heal his servant. I would expect perhaps the servant, similar to the, the, the father in the parable of, of the, uh, the lost son, um, to, uh, to go run out and meet Jesus and urge him along. Come, come, come. Yes, I'm so glad you're here. Come on, let's go. It's right this way. But again, the centurion does an unexpected thing. What does he say? Verse eight, Lord, I don't, deserve to have you come under my roof actually but just say the word and my servant will be healed understand this is not a look I want a miracle but don't you dare come into my house kind of thing no this is much more indicative of Luke chapter 18 where he says this in verse 9 to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else Jesus told this parable he said two men went up to the temple to pray okay one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this here tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I've got, God. I'm something special. But the tax collector, I love him, he stood at a distance and he wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I see that in the centurion. I see a centurion that recognizes his place before the creator of the universe. I know this sounds a lot like last week's sermon on humility so far. But the question you and I are faced with in this first part of, of Matthew 8 is this. What needs to change in your attitude to enable you to come before Jesus in a faith like the centurions? What needs to change in your attitude for you to come before Jesus in a faith like the centurions? The centurion's faith is simple. He doesn't complicate it. Did you notice that? 
But his attitude in coming before Christ is the main point of the, of the first part of this passage. He leaves all his importance, all of his qualifications at the door, and he simply comes before Jesus empty-handed and says, help. I've heard of you before. I've heard of what you can do. And I have nothing else to offer for you except to ask you if you would come help me, please. I'm not even worthy for you to enter my home. What I see in this first part is truth number one, is that humility is required for us to have faith in Christ. I don't think there's any other way. Humility is required for us to have faith in Christ. You and I can have all the reason in the world that, to think that we might have some standing before, before Jesus. But when it comes down to it, the only posture I think we can come before with him is that of humility where we rightly interpret our position as it relates to the king of the universe, by the way, the God who created and still sustains the universe by his breath. Humility is the only posture where I rightly say, you know what, God, you are everything and I am not. Truth number one, humility is required. Truth number two, I'll go ahead and give this to you up front. Please, please don't check out. Faith becomes simple when we know who it is we're having faith in. Faith becomes simple when we know who it is we're having faith in. Go back to verse eight. He says this, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself, he says, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he doesn't. Uh, sorry, he does it. <laughs> The Roman didn't even need Jesus to come all the way to his house. He was so confident in who Jesus was that all he asked was that Jesus stay where he was, say the word, heal his servant, and he believed it could be so. Don't you wish you had a faith like that? This guy knew authority when he saw it because he himself exercised authority over others and they responded positively. How much more would God Most High, God Almighty, respond to the sickness that was killing his servant? How much more? It says that Jesus is astonished. As the youth say, he shook. I deal with that a lot, by the way. Luke tells us that he marveled. The word marvel in the Greek can be translated as admire. Man, I would personally love to have a faith that Jesus admires, wouldn't you? Jesus then goes on to say that he hasn't found anyone in Israel with such faith, actually. Because of all the people that I've been around, actually, you know, sorry disciples, sorry others, this guy has got it figured out. I haven't found someone with such faith as him. I'm astonished. Wow. I admire your faith, sir. And we find out that just as the centurion believed Jesus could heal his servant, Jesus tells him that it will be done. The friends actually go back home and they find the servant well again, just as Jesus said. This is the kind of faith that expects Jesus to show up. That believes wholeheartedly that he will. You and I tend to complicate faith into this thing where only if we pray a certain number of times or if we say exactly the right thing without screwing it up, then maybe and just maybe God will hear and respond in, 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 in the way we would like him to. But oftentimes it's clouded with the lie that, you know, I haven't seen God shown up beforehand in my life, so I'm not really sure that he will now. I want a faith like the centurion's. 
one that is bold and unhindered, one that is humble but unquestioning. The question burning in my mind is how do I get there? And the answer is that we know who it is we're having faith in. If you're gonna write anything down, I need you to write that down. That we know who it is we're having faith in. I wish I could complicate this for you. Sometimes we, we as, as preachers like to complicate things a little bit too much. And I, truthfully, I wish that there was more to this. But as I'm reading through this account and as I'm reading through the rest of the Bible, I don't think there is. When you and I know who it is we're having faith in, things change. There's a feller um, named Ronnie Beller. I didn't mean to rhyme that, actually. <laughs> That's a huge mistake. Go back one, if you would. That's Ronnie. Ronnie passed away about a year and a half ago with some, uh, some complications uh, from, a, from a sickness. Um, but Ronnie uh, was part of a ministry called Discovery Ministries. They're down in Eminence, Missouri. And, and Discovery Ministries, their, their whole mission is they take you know, missionaries, uh, pastors, staff, uh, they take, you know, homeschool groups, anybody who wants to, and they do wilderness ministry, which basically what's that mean? what that means is they, they put you out in the woods and they say, have fun. We're going to be with you, but have fun. And they break you down spiritually, emotionally, physically, and mentally in every possible way. And I mean, they break you down to where all you can do is rely on the Father. And it is a wonderful thing. And it grows you. And it's this beautiful thing where you come out like with, with these wonderful life lessons. It's awesome. It's, it's their ministry. We're going to teach Peter people how to problem solve, how to persevere through anything through sticking them in the woods. And, and Ronnie was part of this. And, um, and I remember I, I was on this challenge trip when I was a, a, a junior in college. It was 2019. And I was on this challenge trip. And, and we had canoed. We had hiked. We were weary. We were, we were tired. And we got to the rock climbing portion of the trip. And I got to tell you, I'm not a fan of heights. Not at all. Some people are like Mark. Go ahead and show that picture. That's Mark in January, all right? Mark's insane, all right? That's, and fine, you might say, well, Phil, he's strapped in. I don't care. He's on the top of a building looking down at certain death should something fail. I'm not about it, all right? I'm just not gonna do it. And so we get to the rock climbing portion. You can go back to the picture of Ronnie and Ronnie's just sitting there on a stool and he's, he's you know, we, we hiked up the back way and there was, you know, there was a, a you, could, you could climb a wall, you could rappel down. And I was like, well, I don't wanna climb the wall yet. So I was like, well, maybe I'll rappel down the cliff. And I get to the edge of the cliff and I'm looking down I'm like, I don't wanna do that either. It's about 50 feet and I'm going straight into the current river. Uh, and I look at Ronnie, he's just sitting there kind of with a smile on his face, and he goes, hook in. I was like, do what? He's like, well, I gotta hook you in. For what? Well, you're gonna go down that backwards. And I was like, yeah, right, pal. No, I'm not. Not a chance. And in that moment, faith was introduced. In that moment, faith was introduced. Here's what you need to know about Ronnie. He was an expert rock climber. And I mean an expert rock climber. He trained a good portion of DM staff. He went rock climbing in his, in his free time. He had hooked in hundreds of people before. He had gone on dozens of trips before. He knew how to tie the knots. He knew how to tie the anchors. He knew how to rappel down a wall. He was an expert. And he simply just sat there with a smile on his face and without saying it said, Phil, will you trust me? Will you trust me? I'm asking you to do something. Do you believe that I am who I say I am, that I, can, that I can guide you down this cliff safely? And so I hooked in and I turned around and I went down backwards. And, and I gotta tell you, the, the going off the, the edge part's the worst part. Once you start going down, it was elating. It was wonderful. And I went up two more times. I was like, let's do it again. Yay. 
So much fun. Do we know who it is we're having faith in? Do we know who it is we're having faith in? For the centurion, Luke 7, 3 gives us the clue. It says this. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him. Did you catch the phrase? He heard of Jesus. He had heard about this Jesus before and knew what he was about. He knew that Jesus had healed before. And the logical reasoning in his mind was that Jesus would do it again. Maybe he had heard about the leper that had just been healed before. Or maybe he had heard about Matthew chapter 4 where people were coming in droves bringing their sick and ill to Jesus. And he was healing all of them. And it was spreading throughout the Decapolis and throughout the countryside. Maybe that's what he heard about. I don't know. But what I do know is he had heard of Jesus before. He knew what he was about. And he knew what he was getting himself into when he went to him for healing, when he went to him for help. He had an accurate picture of Jesus in his mind, of the, Jesus, of the Jesus he was having faith in. So the question I need you to answer in your own head is, do you know who Jesus is? This might seem elementary, but before you just automatically say yes and move on, I need you to think about it. Do you know who Jesus is? Do we have an accurate picture of the Messiah in our mind that we read about in these gospels? Do you believe in a Jesus who understands your temptation and can help you with a way out? Do you believe in a Jesus who knows what it means to be rejected and yet he still had a heart of compassion for those who rejected him? Do you believe in a Jesus who can heal literal blind eyes and open literal deaf ears and literally take a guy that's laying that hasn't walked in years and say, get up, and he springs up, picks up his mat, and runs off? Do we believe in a Jesus that commands the demons wherever he wishes and they cower in fear and obey? Do we believe in a Jesus who teaches with authority and helps you live faithfully in a generation that wants nothing to do with him? Or who teaches you how to love from the greatest of these to the least of these? Or who gives wisdom in conflict or who takes a violent storm and literally just by speaking stops it? Do you believe in a Jesus who can take a few Rolls rolls worth of bread and a few tiny fish and feed the entirety of Sporting KC Stadium with it? By the way, these are all from the Gospel of Luke and we're only in chapter 9. Is that the Jesus we believe in? I do. And he hasn't changed. That's the thing. A lot of times we, we, we look at the Jesus from the Bible and it's like, well, you know, he, one, he's still alive, by the way. Shocker. Easter happened. He's still here. Okay. But a lot of times we look at this Jesus that we read about and we're like, well, that was way back then. He hasn't changed. He's still him. Again, I wish I could complicate this for you, and I wish faith was more complicated, but it's not when we have an accurate depiction of who Jesus is, of the Jesus we can claim faith in. You know, I think there's a strong and clear reason why the author of Hebrews writes what he does in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, when he says this, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, a.k.a. let's do the Christian life. How, Mr. Author? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's writing this, by the way, to a group of people that are just going through the ringer and they are on the verge of giving up. 
They are on the verge of losing faith and giving up hope. And of all the things the author could say to spur them forward and say, keep going, please. It is worth your time. It's worth your salvation. It's worth your eternity. The main one he says is don't forget who Jesus is. Remember him. Keep your eyes fixed on him. There's a reason for it. When you are going through the absolute crud of life, and many of you have and many of you are, I've heard enough stories from this room to know that. Where are your eyes? Where are your thoughts? Are they fixed on God Almighty and the, the, the sustainer of our universe? Are they scouring these pages looking for where are you in my, in my life right now? Or are they fixed on the issue? In the midst of trial... Faith becomes simple when we remember who Jesus is. His previous actions encourage us forward in faith. Jesus' previous actions encourage us forward in faith. So what are you going to do now? Well, I'd like you to memorize truth number one and truth number two in your little bulletin. But beyond that, this week I want you to read the Gospel of Luke. That's my takeaway for you. I want you to read the Gospel of Luke. You're like, buddy, I got two verses a day max. All right, hear me out. Specifically in the Gospel of Luke, it, yes, it, it highlights the life of Jesus, but specifically Luke is a doctor, and Luke highlights and focuses on the healing aspect and miracles of Jesus. He focuses on the impossible side of Jesus. And my challenge to you simply is to crack open the book of Luke and read it in one sitting. On average, it takes people about two and a half hours. Carve out two and a half hours or three hours in their week. And perhaps you think, I'm a slow reader. Okay, maybe carve out four. I'm a quick reader. Carve out one and a half. I don't care. But my challenge is to immerse yourself in, in, in the gospel of Luke. And while you're doing so, might I challenge you also to be having a conversation with Jesus and just say, would you reveal yourself to me and would you transform the way I think about you as I read this? And open yourself up to a life transformation as a result of that. Can we do that? Come before Christ in humility and know that simple faith happens when we know who it is that we have faith in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time that we get to spend together and honor you with our thoughts and with our minds and with our voices. God, I pray for everyone in this room that you would give them the courage to have an accurate picture of you in their mind, whatever that might be. Perhaps there's some unbelief about who you are exactly and what you're all about. And this journey through Luke might change that perspective. God, I pray it will. I pray that you would help us as a church to believe every part of you not just the parts that seem most feasible, but give us a simple faith in that like the centurions so that we can continue to persevere and remain faithful in our walk with you. In Christ's name, amen. We're gonna step into a time of communion. If you haven't grabbed your communion packet, the tables are on the sides of the room or corner of the room in the back. I invite you to do that at this time. I love the story of the centurion. 
That's why we put it in the series. And, and uh, if, if you kind of followed along with, with a series of shoes, we gave the centurion a pair of work boots. And the idea was that he's somebody who has status, yet he's not afraid to jump right in and get his hands and feet dirty with everybody else. And I think about the centurion a lot. I think about the story that, that Phil told us in the sermon quite a bit because it's easy, I think, at times to identify with somebody like the centurion. He was somebody who worked for the Roman government. He was an important person. He had status. And maybe you do too. Maybe you work a job where you've worked your way up and you've, you you've, feel like you've earned the respect of the people around you and you get kind of irritated if you don't get that respect. Or maybe, you know, you've reached a certain age where you, you think that certain people should just show you respect or give you respect. And, and maybe you have. Maybe it's legitimate. I know for me, sometimes it's easy to think that. And I think about this centurion who is an important, powerful person. And what I love about that whole story was the line he says in verse 8, when he tells Jesus, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. And I think that because we can be the same way. We can approach everybody around us with that same mindset at times. And yet that's exactly what Jesus did. He came under our roof anyway. He came into our lives anyway. He came into our world anyway. And that's what we reflect on when we take communion. We look at at, uh, what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 when he tells us to adopt the same attitude of Jesus who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity when he came as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We look at this time of communion. We take this packet with this piece of bread and this cup of juice. And it's, it's in this moment where it's natural for us to to look at our lives as, as lives of sinners. Romans 3 tells us that, that we've all sinned and that we all continually fall short. That's a, a present and active tense verb. We don't just fall short, we do continually, time and time and time again. But yet Jesus came anyway. And he came to us anyway. And it's in this time of, of, of communion, of taking the body and the blood of Jesus, that we remember what else Paul tells us after that in Romans 3 that through the death of Jesus, we were justified, we were redeemed, we were restored, we were atoned for. And so as we take communion, we move from looking at the sin in our life, that sin that leads to guilt, that guilt that leads to shame. And instead we look forward and we look at the salvation that Christ gave us through the blood on the cross. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for his life, for his sacrifice for the example that he set and gave to us by what he did on Calvary. God, I pray that as we take these elements, Lord, we would honor you, we would bless you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name.